welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. Today, we're recording live from the Wine GB Annual Trade Tasting, where we're joined by Karen Jenkins and Elizabeth Else. Together, they're working with some of the UK's finest producers to improve business models, drive brand building tourism, and grow successful digital. Join us as we settle in for a conversation about the new and old challenges for producers and solutions to thrive amidst today's uncertainty. Let's get into it. We are hiding out in a back room at the Wine GB Annual Trade Tasting. I'm here with Karen Jenkins and Elizabeth Else, who I have known or communicated with in the wine world at this point for years. And we're going to talk about UK wine marketing, about trade communications, about the new Wine GB report, and let's get into it. So um, it's nice because I can see faces, but the audience can't see us. So I'm going to quickly ask each of you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your expertise in wine and where you are rocking change for our industry. So Karen, you have a fabulous producer's toolkit that we're going to talk about. If you're shy to introduce yourself, do you want to start with that? Okay, well, the producer toolkit um, is about helping producers to how they communicate in terms of getting their basic information right. And all of that comes from my background as working for an import, as an importer for the last 20-something years and what the requirements were in the trade to know about producers and their wines to be able to basically support the sales of those wines. So when I decided to work for myself a few years ago, I wanted to pick an area that was of interest to me and get back to my roots and force myself to do some more academic study and be able to put all that information into context for people. Because people in the trade are really, really busy and everybody pretends, they don't pretend, but they have to get on with the next thing. So they gloss over stuff. And sometimes you need to spell out some of the basics to them to really understand who you are and what you do. So, so along with the producer's toolkit, you do a lot of consulting as well um, with in-house teams. And then you do a lot of collaborative work with with Elizabeth as well. Okay. Yeah, so different opportunities come up. It comes from working in the trade for many years, working with really good producers, importing, representing them, background in retail before that. So I just love all the different things. And I quite like being independent now because I can look at the trade from lots of different angles. And although I've been doing it a long time, I love all the new developments. I love having met people like yourself on social media and things like that because I never would have had those opportunities 15, 20 years ago, because the trade didn't didn't work like that. Awesome. Well, we're going to come back to that and talk about some of the channels that trade is using. But first, Elizabeth. So um, I'm going to fangirl for a moment because there are so many people who do the thing that you and I do, Elizabeth, and they don't necessarily do it well, and it's not necessarily in wine. And I've always enjoyed communicating with you and working with you because you're so talented at the work that you do with wine brands around digital. So can you tell us a little bit about that with the cellar door and how that has evolved into consulting? It all started because I was doing uh, e-commerce for quite big brands, nothing to do with wine. And I was um, embedded with a client for 12 months or so, typically, um, doing quite big, stressful launches. And then I was thinking, I need something to do in between. So I'd take a gap between those projects and um, started visiting vineyards and just doing a blog just for my own sake. And then I realized after a while that it's very easy to find who grows so many hectares of Chardonnay 
But if you want to know which vineyards open on a Tuesday, it's almost impossible. So I thought, well, I could do that because to me, a website where you can say a dress that's red with short sleeves is exactly the same as a vineyard in Surrey that's open on a Tuesday. So that's just the way my brain works. And so I built that website just, just for fun, really. And that's gone through a few iterations. And then I started doing um, a bit of e-commerce in wine. And now mainly I'm doing consultancy because I can see where producers can improve in their direct-to-consumer offering, you know, mainly sort of, you know, tourism and e-commerce is sort of the way I've come at DTC. And those are the main routes to market, really, for people selling direct-to-consumer. So what I think is really interesting about this is that both of you are working in wine education. But so often when we talk about wine education, what we're talking about is uh, advising the consumers, is educating the consumers. But really, there's a lot of growth that we're seeing happening in terms of the knowledge base or the desire to learn amongst producers and their in-house teams. Um, so, Karen, you are working on the educational side of their trade relationships and their trade representation and their communications. Are there patterns that you just, you know, Every time you take a look at a prospective new client, you look at what you're doing and you're like, yep, A, B, C, I see this time and time again. What are those most common pitfalls? The most common pitfall, I think, specifically talking about English and Welsh producers, is, is the understanding between their, their own DTC sales, their online sales, and re retail pricing in the trade. Ooh, talk about that. You mentioned the P word, pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Having worked as an importer, you know, working at sellers, working in the UK, you know what the margins are going to be. At an event like this, people have to give a, an indication of their retail pricing. It's, it's where people assess you, what bracket they put it into. And often people struggle to have that accurately. But the big issue with uh, English producers, when they start out, they're gonna, they're all about their website and their seller draw, and they've got to think about the bigger picture to what that, where they pitch themselves as to where that pricing will put them if they had trade clients later on. So, which direction does that go, chicken or the egg? Is it that they've started out with retail pricing and they've decided they want to adopt some sort of digital strategy? And then they're saying, okay, I've got channel conflict and how do I price this in such a way that I don't piss off all of my trade relationships? Or is it, you know, people who are just starting out as the example that you gave who aren't thinking oh, at some point I need to be able to move beyond D to C. Think about that thing then. It sounds over the top when they've got 300 bottles to sell or something the first, you know, but it is where you're going to put your pricing. And then if you had to sell that to a trade person, could you still make that price? And if you're going to put it on your website, will that be the same price that a trade person would sell it at? Because you can't, you don't want to be playing around with it later on. You know, it's it, for somebody that hasn't got a ton of wine to sell. I mean, everything I do is geared towards small producers because that's what I yeah. I understand. That's my field. But but we we've seen that, and the people people there's you just see the light bulbs going on. Think yeah, and it sounds overcomplicated because when you say you start talking about trade, they think oh yes, do I need a distributor? Or am I doing this that and the other? And we're not talking. We we now know that we are talking trade within their local markets, and and if you get that right you've given yourself a much better structure for how you build as you go forward. And this is still talking about small volumes. We're not talking about somebody that wants to build an empire. We're just talking about getting the absolute basics right, knowing where that will put you. So what factors when you're doing that modeling are you taking into account? And I'll, I'll give an example that comes up quite often. Um, something like social media, which I will admit I loathe social media and social media can be such a very expensive line item that when you're starting out, I mean, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole on this, but we'll stick with social media for a minute. When you're starting out, you just think, oh, I'll do it. You know, you've got no idea. You're not thinking about scalability or how many other jobs you're going to have. Are you going through all of these various costings and helping them see you may not need it right now, but the day is going to come when you need to hire someone to do a job for you, or this is the rabbit hole. 
It's really great that you're small and you're owner operated, but if you break your leg, you're going to be able to, you're going to need to hire someone to do your job and factor in, you know, all of these into their pricing model. I think that the, the issue that we, it's difficult to advise people on is if they've got their, their costs right, yeah. which is, covers the areas that you're talking about to know whether or not they're making a good margin. I mean, that's really difficult to advise anybody on whether they were an English producer or a Welsh mm. or, or a European producer. Because, you know, the, the, the thing that we're trying to do is give them some confidence if they've thought about it, when people throw things at them and say, you're too expensive or you're too cheap or we won't pay that or they've done a little bit of their own research and they've got a sense of where they are with things. And maybe there will be things specific to them cost-wise, which they think need to think are coming down the route, down the road. Do you deal in the UK with the tall poppy syndrome that we have? So in New Zealand, you don't want to appear like you are growing above yourself. You're too big for your britches. And so the, the tall poppy syndrome is kind of tied into this idea of, I don't want to be the most expensive producer in my region. And then my neighbors, you know, they'll look at me and be like, why do you charge so much? And that, that sense of discomfort, that's not something that pervades the UK. Yeah, I think I think the thing with what I'm finding is I'm learning about how the English producers and the Welsh producers see themselves and where they see them in, themselves in the local market. So, and, that, and then you can't say to them a benchmark is you are expensive for that sparkling wine compared to a Prosecco or something like that. It's got to be relative to their local market. So Elizabeth identified, um, we talked about the premiums, you know, what they can what they can manage locally, which isn't necessarily competitive nationally, but if it works for them locally, it makes sense in terms of what they can charge and they have to think about those things. We've sort of developed a little formula because people say, oh, but I can get a glass of Suave or something, a bottle at, at such and such a price and the English is much more expensive. And we're sort of saying to producers, well, people will pay the same as they would pay for the enjoyment of that bottle plus a little bit extra for the fact that it's local mm. and possibly a little bit extra again for the fact that it's sustainable, you know, if they really look after the land and so on. But we're saying to the producers, if you want to charge that premium, which is probably what you need to do to make a profit because it's a new industry here and everything's expensive, you have to communicate why people should be paying those, yeah. those extra bits. Elizabeth and... How do we do that? I mean, like, again, coming back to what are the basics? What are the, the communication problems that you see and your team, you know, it corrects time and again on how they present that brand now going beyond trade, but to the end consumer? There's storytelling, which is obviously what you work on a lot with your clients and that engagement. But to interrupt really quickly on the storytelling, because um, I, I imagine, Karen, that there's a lot of going through that story with them as you're doing your strategic planning. Like that storytelling starts from the moment that you're sitting there saying, what is what does our pricing model look like? Everything, all, the, all those keywords, I, I'm calling them benchmark terms, mm. which is but that the key identifiers for them is really not that, you know, it's just, if you're going to say, we said, like, you know, if there's a sustainability premium, if it's a natural wine or if it, you know, you have to be consistent in how you refer to yourself using those terms. And I think when people are starting from scratch and they're building their website and, and they are, I'm relating to people who have no extra help or no extra tools because right. that's the companies that I work for and you do everything, you so design everything yourself. You do, yeah. So they, they're doing all these different bits and then they come, you, they, you look at it and you can see that the things don't match up or the terminology is not clear. And, and we're saying about you have to nail those terms and how you communicate them. Right. So again, really basic, but get it right so that you're then always saying you've got your own little elevator pitch. Yeah, you've got your messaging pillars. Um, okay, so then going coming back to what Elizabeth's talking about. Um, so that information passes from you and your work with the client, then to Elizabeth, you and you know how you are looking at the brands when you're building out their digital because words are not just spoken. You know, they're what does it look and feel like? What's the experience like? So um, from your side on the digital, 
getting that storytelling across, are we looking at experience, imagery, you know, like, are there elements of, of crafting a, that good digital strategy that then support the work that Karen's done with her clients? I think imagery is a huge one. So on Wine Cellar Door, we've got like 270 UK vineyards that you can visit. So they are, in a sense, competing for the visitor's attention with the other 270-odd vineyards on my site. And you would not believe how many people either cannot supply a decent image or they send an image of rows of vines that could be Hansel anywhere. Grapes. <laughs> yeah. Is that the moment that you look at them and just say, okay, come on, let's, let's do better? I mean, do you just do you just say I'm sending a photographer out to you kind of to go to go a, a little bit down the wine cellar door track, you know, that is a business for you as well, where you are representing them and trying to upskill them. I mean, do you, are you, this, is this part of your workshopping and the consulting that you're doing, getting them to understand some of those basic, basic principles, like don't start running stories if you can't afford to get good photography done sort of thing. So that was, so some producers pay to have their listing. So we do a basic listing for everybody because otherwise it's not a complete experience for the vineyard visitors. Um, but some pay to be on the website. And then during lockdown, I did a weekly workshop on one of these basic topics. I remember that. To try and yeah. help upskill them. And that was in fact how I brought Karen in to start talking about, about trade sales. But, you know, one of the things, yeah, is all about photography and it doesn't have to be you don't need hundreds of images. You need a few very good images. And we showed an example to a client we were working with the other day of images that are perhaps 10 years old, but they're so good. They get used in generic publications. They get used everywhere. So it's, it's not just the quantity, but you do need images to hand. You know, we know if a journalist calls you and wants to feature your vineyard, they will call you at 4.30 in the afternoon and they want the images by latest eight o'clock the next morning by 4 40 in the <laughs> yeah, afternoon exactly so if you don't have that image bank the you know dropbox link we transfer folder whatever it is ready to send over in high resolution and in low resolution so you can embed a couple of teaser images in an email if i'm trying to get featured in your publication i don't want to go Oh, well, you've got to like go to WeTransfer, download this link, and then you'll see what I've got. Or even worse, you need to register on, <laughs> you know, on this place and get a password and then you're going to verify it. And then maybe, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we, we have the imagery, um, which I think that wineries can get behind, you know, like they may not want to spend the money, which is always the case with the kind of wineries that we work with. Um, but the, the idea of, okay, I need imagery. But what about on the, um, on, on the digital side of things? What what are some of the other challenges that you sort of saw time again or the spaces where you were like, look, here is where we can immediately address some low hanging fruit and see some real wins? Bottle shots. Bottle <laughs> shots. <laughs> tech sheets. Ooh, tech sheet. Oh, that's an interesting one. Can I ask a question about tech sheets? Because this kind of falls yeah. into both of both of your, you know, um, work. So we get this all the time with tech sheets of how much information do you display or do you offer in what formats? So like, you know, tech sheets are used within our trade and our media and our press all the time. But then we also have the technical information that's consumed by super geeky wine consumers like my husband. How do you, how do you disperse that appropriately? Karen? Because I've picked up on something for the Elizabeth sees when she's, which is great for me because I'm like totally focused on, you cannot not have enough information if you're going to provide a, a text sheet for people. I think my producer toolkit is actually a profile and to support the individual text sheets as well. But that not everybody wants to go down that route. But So when you say it's a profile to support the text sheets. So, so it's, uh, when I was saying earlier on about in the trade, people don't always register you know so my winery is um near vienna it's in austria and uh, or it's in bergenland which is near the hungarian border and my grapes are x and 
giving people the background and putting some context to whatever their winemaking is, their right. ethos, their philosophy, which then gives you the background to the the tech sheets. Now, not everybody wants to do that, but we but I listen all the time to everybody arguing about what a tech sheet should be, and that's gets I really get into that because in the end you are ultimately trying to get information across and want people to want to know more. And you can totally guarantee that with most producers, they're always doing something really interesting, but I haven't told you about it. So my process of getting information out of them is to have, that I take everything I can find without talking to them, whatever they've got, whether it's solid, you know, hard copies or online or whatever it is. And then I, I work out a draft version and then I do, an inter, I do an interactive Q&A. And I push them and push them and push them until I get what I need, and then I distill it all back down again. Now, that's a quite intensive process, but what I've learned is that, that because people argue about what is salient for consumers or mm -hmm. trade or whatever, a lot of the people, depending on which sector of the, which side of the border they are, their perceptions are different. So if you're a small producer, for example, you can't meet everybody's requirements. So this is a getting down to basics version that will crystallize it for you as well as them. And they will find something in there that is of interest to them. And they will want to know, they will want to know more. That's I want to see one. I want to see one. No, seriously, because yeah. you're right. Tech sheets. We see tons of tech sheets. Yeah. Some of them are excellent. Some of them are pretty. Some of them are informative. Some of them may as well never have been printed kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, the, the other thing, um, and, and then I kind of want to come back to both of you on this is we don't as an industry, we as producers don't really love talking about ourselves. So, you do interviews and you do consulting. And it sounds like a lot of both of that is you are the other person who is using good discovery to draw out the things that maybe if they were just sitting there, they might not. I can give you an example of that. We were talking with a new producer the other day and they were making a big deal about their sustainability. And then Karen said, oh, which grapes do you grow? I can't find that anywhere, obviously. And as soon as she listed the list of grapes, I said, ah, oh, so you've chosen grapes that should need minimal amounts of chemical to keep them healthy. And she was like, yes, but a consumer wouldn't necessarily go, oh, you're growing this variety in that variety and you have chosen them yeah. for that reason. And, and that was why they'd chosen the grapes, but that, that, that little yeah. bit of communication to the consumers was missing because the consumer will go, oh, you're just growing great varieties I haven't heard of. Mm. It's the why. What, what's interesting, um, exactly. what I really love about this is, I'm just going to say it, there is a huge benefit to hiring consultants who know your industry. Like I see so often, don't go out and hire a generic consultant who doesn't understand wine because they would not have made that immediate jump to, oh, well, I know this thing about those grapes and therefore we can effectively move faster in the process. Um, Karen, you wanted to say something about the well, tech sheets. What was really interesting about what, the question you asked at the beginning between the distinction between uh, consumer requirements and things like that is, yeah. is that Elizabeth has been coming at it because she's been doing websites for people. We, we, you know, I could give her, like I did for one of the producers, you know, massive amount of information, but how do you communicate? You only need to communicate on the top level to the consumers on the website. So you have to get that right. And how you break that down and how you identify what works because that can be things that would be useful and also stylistically how that producer wants to come across and then how do you then also have the trade version and exactly so we've been talking about that about press paper you know so actually the sheer mechanics of having got after you've got the information right how do you utilize it which is what I identify as accessibility and availability you know which is basically for me have you got a downloadable pdf on it because not everybody has and where is where are the links on the website? So Elizabeth would look at that. But it's also the the, the the basic information in terms of, you know, somebody's classic cuvee. What are the few things that pop up visibly on that web page, which does the right job for the consumer? And then where else is the information for the trade? And and people often don't see the need 
for both of that. But you could have done a really good job on your trade version, but you've got to get your consumer one right. Uh, going back to this idea that one of the first things you're working with is what are your pricing models? Now we've got what's the story? What's the imagery? What does the technical data look like? Elizabeth, when you're working on their digital does that price point matter to the amount of information? So like are super premium wine brands much more likely or better served by offering deeper technical knowledge? I think in, in all cases, it doesn't matter how much you're paying. I think it's about layers of information. So when I've been building a website, what I like to do is at the top have... Um, the short description, um, which I call more than the grapes. So it's like, this is a crisp dry wine from 30% this and 70% that. So that if someone is just coming to the website, they know what they want to buy. They've got that reassurance. Okay. So it's a crisp, fresh wine. It's got those varieties in and that's all they need to read and the price. And for plenty of people, they may wish to buy at that point. And then as they go down into the longer description, there's more information and more information and more information. So it is those Geek layers. Scroll further is really exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, for instance, um, I launched a website for a pottery company in this country years ago. And generally, do you need to know how tall a pot, a vase is going to be? No. But if you were going to buy it and had a particular shelf where you wanted to display it. So that information needs to be somewhere, but it doesn't need to be front and center. You're not selling it as a 16 centimeter high vase, but somebody who's buying it needs to know that. And that would be obviously further down the information. So it's Yeah, no, I I like that as a reference. I I really do. I'm going to remember that about the pottery. So going back to my question about tech sheets, what about video? What about audio? Are we moving toward different channels to communicate this kind of data? Or are we always just like, we got our PDFs? Um, I, why not? I I think they, I think they should. Yes. I think it's, it's, um, if you've done your prep, you know, and you're clear about what you're communicating. When we, I got involved with a producer, whose family had been making wine in Italy for ages and they had a chance to work with another importer in the UK. And um, it was during lockdown and we sort of got together for a distance tasting with some other people in the UK. So she wasn't there and she'd done a video to tell yeah. us about the wines. And, and, you know, and I thought that was fantastic because it filled in more gaps than we could have done by tasting it and then going back and asking her afterwards. And her features were terrible, so they didn't tell us anything. <laughs> So one of the things that I have been um, pushing for years and nobody will will really embrace it, which is kind of guts me, is this notion that we have in digital such a good vehicle for scripting and education that goes beyond just us and our immediate trade relationships, but also, you know, getting the people who are on the front lines of selling, providing some kind of high five. Elizabeth and I are giving each other a high five in the background. Um, Giving something so that the young SOM or the person who's working retail or anything can feel like they're engaging with your brand beyond just look, nobody who's 22 and working in a liquor store wants to read a tech sheet, but they might sit down and watch a two minute winemakers video where that love comes across as long, as well as the technical details. How do we how do we get our producers to embrace that when we're just right now just trying to get them to understand the basics of you need to do a, a, a better tech sheet? How do we get them moving faster? I'm not sure I know the answer. I think I it's I think it's so no, but I think I but I love the idea of it because I think it 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 um it's getting them to understand that it, the people want to connect with them. So if they're talking from the heart about what they're doing, but they also have to remember they've got a bit of a message to get across. So I'm just saying, I'm, I've got to think about the word premium because I'm sure any people in the word trade use the word premium because, you know, yeah. we're not making premium wine. You might, weirdly, my cousin makes wine in New Zealand and uh, he was being doing, I know, he's been doing videos of, of the halves and he was talking about their Pinot Gris vines and, and it, I was learning from him listening, you know, it was just a short, it was a reel or whatever. Yeah, and he's the same age as me, so he's obviously he's he's you know embraced the new version of doing it. But I think 
some of the younger winemakers out there who've taken over from the families or they're totally new to wine, they are communicating like that. And, and I, I, what I love about the whole social media dialogue that we have of all these different arguments, wine Twitter, having a row about whatever it is, I, lo- I, I tend to sort of just try and look at every side of the argument. And I think, you know, have a go. And, and, and not, um, one of the things we picked up the other day was somebody thought that she had to have a tech sheet because that's what you did. Oh, you know, it was like a tick right. box thing. So I think people, if they understand the context of those channels, they've got the ability to communicate by video, by podcast mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's going to be a really useful communication selling tool for them rather. You know, but for both sides of it, for yeah. trade as yeah. well as as yeah. well as the public, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I want to I want to talk about some of what we've seen in the Wine GB reporting that's come out um, this week. Don't worry, we don't have to reference numbers. Um, I'll put a link in the description for everyone. But uh, specifically, we've got growth numbers uh, from 2019 uh, across the direct consumer channels, and it's broken down between seller door and online sales. Um, first thing that I think any of us who work in money want to get out and say is 2020 was anomalous. You know, please don't ask your marketing teams to double whatever your growth rate was in 2020, because that's just not ever going to happen. Um, but I, I do like the fact that the report breaks down the difference between the two different channels. Um, Elizabeth, with your work with Wine Cellar Door, you are so knowledgeable about wine tourism uh, and what works and what doesn't work. And Karen, with your work with importers, you know the trade so well. So what is that middle ground? I think in a way it doesn't matter what's people's first impression of your wine. You know, if they come to the cellar door and love it, they may spot your wine in a merchant or buy it online. If they see a wine in a restaurant, they may then come to the cellar door. So I think they all, it doesn't matter which comes first, okay. but they all feed nicely off each other. So you've, you've really got to have those, I suppose it's consistency, isn't it, across? Well, that probably gets into exactly the purpose of cellar door, that if I'm a drinker and I've been somewhere, I've been in a shop and I, I see something wonderful that I want to be able to find them. And I'm like, oh, and you know, I may find them online. I may get to wine cellar door. I may get to their own site. And then getting them out to the winery in the era of post-COVID, how important is it? I think the getting them out to the winery if people do it well um and (laughs) you and i both know the value of wine clubs as well i think Mm -hmm. people have to escalate that experience because here there were just a few vineyards and people would come out they'd come once they'd have their tour and then why would they come again and and that's what's different here in such an early marketplace compared to the states where people are like member of a wine club for one vineyard or for a group of vineyards. And they're like, oh, we get a discount of all of these. So we go there, there are events, da, 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 da. Whereas here, it really started off with come and visit, do one tour. Mm. And then it's almost, I've done that one. And and then is there a justification for people to come back again? I think, I think that's going to be a big issue here as the number of visitor-friendly vineyards increases so, so rapidly. Are tastings here in the UK becoming expensive in the same way that we're seeing tastings out of Napa? It's really not consistent in any way at all. So sometimes you pay for a tasting, sometimes you don't. Um, Yeah, that, it's very... And the the other thing I noticed in the States is like how the industry supports itself. You know, if I go to the States, I'll get invited for a free tasting anywhere because I'm in the industry. And I went somewhere and um, they had a little evening meeting with all the surrounding vineyards and they each did a little elevator pitch to each other because they recognized the value that when somebody's come and had a lovely time and they go, oh, where else should I visit? So they wanted the staff at the cellar door to be that knowledgeable about everywhere else around. Now, of course, in the States, people places are closer than they are here. But nevertheless, I think that... 
Well, that ties in really really well to the question that I was curious for Karen is like, what is that overlap? If we're looking at trade, like to be fair, how important is it now when we've got an era of Zoom calls all the time to get butts in seat on premises for the people that we may want to build relationships with to take us on board, to represent us well, to get the vibe of the place. Like is digital replacing that? I think I think that people's relationships with other people who run small independent businesses in their local region is is still incredibly important. Is that I mean it's it's we said, you know, think about where you might want to be seen. And and I've had to come at it a completely different way around because, you know, my version of trade, trade is about being, you know, I get very anti this on Twitter about being called a middleman. It's like, you know, my, my raison d'etre was representing the livelihood of the producers that we, we represent their wines in the UK. We were totally responsible for them being able to pay for their, mm-hmm. you know, their seller work or whatever it was. And it's the same with, with the producers here. They need, they can have a relationship with people in their local region that they don't have to have, or they may not need, depending on the level of production, national distribution. It, trade isn't about national trade. You know, it, it can be a good, strong relationship locally. And, and Elizabeth always highlights the fact that, you know, having being in a local restaurant, you're seen, that's a good PR for you. And, and I think that it's very distinct to have local wine markets for the English industry, which is a new thing for me because I've always been in the wine trade. I've not been in the wine industry. This mm. is fantastic. And, and I think that the, the positives are there with that. The negatives are seeing, having an idea that, you know, you are part of a bigger picture. Because you can, you know, you can survive locally, but you've also, and you can really maximize that. So your trade is your local stroke regional trade. And then if you're going to get bigger, where would you like to be seen? What what do you want to be doing? You've got to think about that coming along the line. But you could do an incredibly good job of publicizing yourself locally to get people to come to the vineyard, all this kind of thing. But also you're then going to have to maintain the stock in mm. all those different sectors. Mm. You know, and that's something, again, planning ahead. But I think there's nothing wrong with having a local, local is not bad. It's, it's a strength that these English vineyards can capitalize on, I think. I, I think that that is, uh, again, something that we see, unfortunately, can fall by the wayside too early. And I'll, I'll give an example for that. The number of winemakers I know who have not nailed that local experience, have not made certain that everyone within an X kilometer radius knows them and loves them, but they'll sit in a room and be like, I want China distribution. And you're like, okay, look, China distribution or wherever, pick a place, is going to cost you so much more to service. It's harder to communicate. Just like all the hoops you have to jump through are really hard. Get it right at home where there's a natural um, desire to support you. And, and in fact, so I interviewed Sean Spratt, who is Destiny Bay in New Zealand, and he talked about the fact that one of the things he wished they'd done earlier on was that they'd focused more on building because they are a super premium, even though we don't love the language of it, they are a super premium wine. They wish he wished that they'd worked harder on building the local cachet instead of trying to build the overseas cachet. So um I, I do think again, a great takeaway is that notion of love your local people. These are the people that are going to bring your families to you. They're going to come on Tuesdays, you know, like they're your, they're your go-tos in the same way that restaurants love their locals. Um, Elizabeth, on the local side of things, do you guys do a lot in the way of sort of locally targeted digital where you're saying, I'm not trying to build your brand, you know, for three countries away, but I'm actually trying to use the meat and potatoes of the story for your local audience? Two things about that. The first one, I'm going to digress very slightly because I found something on Facebook the other day and I shared it with Karen that a producer had said something. I think they were after Harvest Volunteers, weren't they? And the commentary was, oh, well, you obviously don't care about the locals and you've cut off our public footpath. And it was just a tirade against... And they hadn't come back and responded to any of it or they hadn't removed the original post. But it was clearly, whoa, you have got something going wrong there. Mm. <laughs> you have a few things going wrong there is what it sounds like. Yeah. Where do you start on that one? But uh. it, in others, um, 
one of the things I talk to people, I think people think they have to have, I, either they can't have anything or they have some fabulous shop that's open all the time. And really, you know, I say it doesn't matter how often you're open, when you're open. It can be one Friday a month. It can be every Tuesday morning. It really doesn't matter as long as you are consistent and you show up for that. And you're going to have to use your online, your email marketing, your social media to respond to that. Mm. And another of my real bugbears is that you'll see on social media, oh, sorry, we're closed today. And you're like, no, you should have been saying three weeks ago, I'm sorry, we closed. Because of the distances people have to travel, you know, so it's just planning it out, thinking about it. And as I say, open um, open once a month if you want to and get your email list to pre-order and they literally turn up. You turn on the smiles and the charm for one day a month. Everybody can do that. And then people come and you're engaging your local community. You make it an event. And I'm always talking to producers and saying, that's a really great way to start and then see how that goes. Can that be done in proxy spaces? So like if you don't actually have the facility to be able to host guests um, at the vineyard or, you know, in the winery, can you do a one day a month pop up and still get the same kind of impact or... I don't see why not. I think I think those pop-ups that haven't really happened here, you know, like in other countries, I've been to Mallorca and there'll be in-town tasting rooms in a little, yeah. and you can stagger, I was going to say, one can stroll from one to another and try yeah. the different wines, yeah. you know, and people aren't having to go way out into the country to the vineyard. But I really think that's very underexploited here. We were talking to one producer earlier who's got an in-town tasting room. They're a negociant, so they don't have a, a vineyard as such. But I can't think of anybody else who's got an in-town tasting room. I mean, one of, one of the things in the UK, which we're coming across um, you know, after the sort of all the big chains died, you know, threshers and things like that, you know, the independents to it, and the independent wine merchants who stock, who are, maybe have two shops now, yeah. partly import their own wines. You know, this is, a, this is something that's, got stronger and stronger over the last 10, 10 years, 10, 15 years. And I think they often want to connect up with somebody who's local to them. So somebody who is very new starting out, has got limited resources, you know, say it's a husband and wife team. You know, this thing, the, the reason Elizabeth was going about consistency is because you can see the looks on their faces, like, how do we manage all these things? How do we do it? How do we do it? And we're trying to give them time-saving, you know, options that are going to get them results as opposed to panicking and running around delivering to everybody five days a week or whatever it is so the pop-up idea um there's some people in wales aren't they? and they're just promoting welsh wine so they've already got they're already in their your corner so if you get them you want to be there and present and do a tasting they get people to come in yeah and i think it's you know from a cash flow and a management yeah. standpoint yeah. they can handle that the other thing that um that I, I know that this goes out to trade but on the odd chance that there's some new wine consumer who happens to be listening i think people forget how much of a community you know i think maybe the the drinkers don't realize that locally everybody knows everybody everybody fills in for everybody i mean for the most part we have a really um community-minded industry. And I've seen a lot of places where in those shared facilities, you are divvying up, you know, manning the the stalls. So it might be, you know, you you might have a, a what would you call it? Sort of round robin, a roster of who's covering it when. And that does involve a lot of trust and a lot of community-mindedness. But the idea of the rising tide lifts all boats. If I'm the consumer and the idea is that we want consumers to love us, then how do collectively we act as a community to make that more possible for them? The guys on the on the regional stands are doing exactly that today. They're representing several different producers. And there are there are um, associations, I forgot what it's, in Kent, they have an association where the, the, the vineyards work together, the vineyards of the Garden of Kent, whatever it is, you know, and that they're all promoting each other and it, it's all tourism orientated, but it's it's promoting themselves as a as a group, you know, and I think that's really effective. 
So um, a couple last questions. He says, I know I've kept you for a lot longer than we had anticipated. The first one is, what do we do when things go wrong? And I'm thinking right now about the energy costs in the UK. Every taxi I've been in on this trip has talked to me about, so they have EV taxis. I'm like, oh my God, EV black cabs. That's the best thing I've ever seen. And they're like, well, it was until the electricity prices went up. And now it's actually cheaper to buy gas. And you know, like you can't get away from this narrative in the UK right now. No, we don't want to increase prices, but if we're running a seller door and we've got a digital arm and we've got, you know, fixed pricing, what gives? I, I just find it really scary. I think every single small business, whether it's food, wine or whatever it is they're doing, they, they're, they're in a catch-22. They, they're going to be in a situation where they don't feel they can make a profit. What do they, what do, they do? I mean, Well, yeah, because if, if I was a brand sitting down with you right now, I'd be like, well, I want to come up with a pricing model, but good Lord, I have no idea what the future holds for me and, and what's going to be viable. It's, I, I think it's easy to sort of stick your head under the blankets. <laughs> it's supposed to be. I mean, one of our local businesses, where I live up in Lincolnshire and we border on Rutland, and there's a, a very successful local baker that's been there for years. And they just put a note up on Facebook and said they've stopped trading. And they supply bread to all these other small businesses or cafes and things, you know, totally successful model just disappeared overnight. But one of the things I've learned from you, Karen, is about like no surprises in your trade relationships. So if your prices do have to go up, yeah, minimize the surprise, warn them. And even there's, um, there's one producer whose website I manage and when they need to put their prices up, you know, I say, can we email people and say the prices are going up on Sunday? Um, so it's just to a closed group. It's not telling the world that the prices are going up, but your family, your supporters, giving them a chance so that people see the value of being on your mailing list. They've got something from being on your mailing yeah. list. Oh, I've got the opportunity to buy at the current price. So you're not um, basically pissing those those people off. So I think that engagement, that building your followers, the repeat purchase, that's really the best protection you've got from these things because continually finding new customers is expensive, yeah. as we all know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we say that we said that, and then the trade is the same thing. So when the people are new to dealing with trade customers, we're trying to give them the confidence to say, look, they will be pleased to hear from you if you let them know that you're running out and ask them if they want six bottles before it goes or your new wines are going to be coming in or the prices are going up. Um, that kind of communication is going to stop you losing those customers because you're only one wine that they stock. And with the entree customers, they're mega busy. They're just in time ordering. They haven't got the space. If you want to keep them, you've got to be slightly more proactive in how you look after them. So you can do that with the pricing, definitely. So a question about that. When we work on the customer side of things with websites, that feedback comes through, the, the feedback from the consumer to the producer comes via analytics, via complaints, via poor reviews. Like there's some consumer to producer feedback loop. When you were working with your wineries, do you give them guidelines on how to solicit good feedback from their trade partners? Because this is one of the biggest complaints that I hear is like, well, I have no idea what they're doing. I don't know where they're going. I don't know where my wines are. I don't know what people in the market are saying about it. Like a lot of times that's not from UK wineries at all, but you know, from other ones that I talk to, how do we train the producers to have, like you say, communicate with them is a really good one, but to get what they need and to have this open conversation. need One of the things that we say is a basic, which is, is to give them themselves a, have a price list <laughs> and put on that what you're charging, mm -hmm. what you've run out of or what may be coming later, but also, you know, your terms and conditions. So we say like, for example, if you can only you're deliver on a Thursday to that town, you, you say, so you give them something to work with rather than them going, oh, can we have some wine now? And you go, oh, sorry, I can't, I can't have it at all. Mm. So you're leading with a positive, you're giving them constraints, but you're, so you've got a mini You're defining of, the terms yeah. of your relationship. Yeah. 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 Again, coming from the point of view of not being run ragged and being a small mm. team. So there is that. And then also 
you know, making themselves available so to, to uh, for in-store tastings like that so they can actually see how the staff are reacting. And I, I had a great time recently because I started working for, a, a couple of years ago, I worked for a local wine shop that was a new merchant that opened because I was really bored during lockdown and I just want, and I used to be a retail manager and it was just brilliant seeing how people came into the shop, mm-hmm. what they thought about the wines, what they were prepared to pay, and it really puts things into context. Are they better off to do that blind so that the person, so that the, the feedback isn't biased? Like, are you better off standing there and people not knowing that you're the producer and yeah, hearing they what could, they, they say? Yeah, they could do that. I mean, if they get a good relationship going with the thing, but you often people surprise you with the comments that they make, you know, because because they're going to come, it's like on Twitter, they're going to come at you for 360 degrees, you know, you're not going to see it all coming. And I think that's quite useful. But you talked about pop-ups. And and an easy way to do a pop up is to work with a local indie wine merchant. You know, there's somewhere um, I know, and I've been helping him source some local wines. And he's barely on social media, and he's selling tickets, twenty five quid a pop, tables of thirty people. He's selling week in, week wow. out, and people are coming in and running tastings. Well, that's a heck of a pop up for me as a winemaker to say, can I come and? show my wines in your, you know, and some kind of profit split or, or, or whatever. So that's, that's an easy way of doing a pop-up where you're, you're helping the merchant, the merchant's helping. Be open to collaboration. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. You know, the samples that you provide have a value. You are doing a deal with those samples. You are giving them added value on top of if they do place an order with you. You know, they get, they get you, they get yeah, we didn't even talk about the cost of samples, but we're going to skip that for today. Um, so you've been out in the bullpen of the wineries today um, without naming names. Were there any anything that really jumped out at you as different, progressive? You looked at it and you're like, that is awesome. And everyone in this room needs to be doing that thing. There's a couple of things for me. There was one producer who'd got some gorgeous pictures and it was just like, um, you know, group of young people enjoying themselves in the vineyard. And he said, we got a professional photographer in, we got some people in, we followed them around all day. They had a picnic, you know, and we got some nice shots of them. And that picture on their leaflet is so engaging so and it's people. It's pictures of people. People in people. <laughs> well, I always say, I've worked in fashion. You would never have a fashion website without people in the clothes. But people think you can have a wine website without anyone drinking the wine. You know, that's what it's all about. And then the other thing is somebody that, that we do know who did a little experiment, created an experimental wine. And they are talking about it with such passion and such excitement and that's, you know, if they talk to consumers like that as well, it's, you know, and, and I bumped into a friend I haven't seen for ages and he said, what's new and exciting that I should try? And I'm like, come over here and try this, you know? Right. Because they were excited about it. And, and this is something you've all heard me complain about this, you know, we make wine. We're not making tires, you know, <laughs> like we're not making fence posts. We make wine. We make this glorious, wonderful product that our audience loves. And I, so when you say the, what's new and exciting is the thing that they love always, always. I mean, I'm going to tell a little story. This has come up a few times this week. Um, advertising, take what you will of how advertising and marketing works. I know that we're an athlete to the wine world. Um, but I was doing project for a client in 2020 and we, it was a very consumer driven campaign. So we went into their Vivino and in their Vivino reviews was this quote, this kind of goes back to tech sheets and how do you sell and digital and pictures and the whole thing. The quote said, this is the wine that made me fall in love with wine. And I thought to myself, I couldn't ask for a better single piece of marketing copy of all of it. Yeah, absolutely imagery, but definitely talk about the things that you love and remember why you love wine. And I'm certain that that carries through in how you talk to trade and even how you write those stories for your tech sheets. And it's all about, it's just so myriad. There's just so much out there. Nobody's right or wrong. Everybody's having a go. I mean, I think what I've actually thought about what I did love today is that I'm loving seeing 
the layers of what's going on. So you've already got wonderful sparkling wines. I'm seeing how distinctive some of the house, what I call them house styles are now, mm. which not, some of them knock me out of the park today. And then there's all these other natural wines appearing and people are playing around with the reds, you know, and this is all in a relatively short period of time. And, and, and I love the fact that, you know, all these small people are not being edged out, you know, that you've got these lovely brands that are going Big on, which are, that. which are introducing, which is, we know any, regional body, generic body will give their eye teeth for the, you know, the ladder effect, all this kind of thing. And it's, but that, you know, the layers are, there's so many layers here this year. It's fantastic. I think it's lovely. And I'm just thinking, oh God, I'm never going to be able to keep up with, <laughs> with learning about it, you know, I think. And, and that's why I carried on doing what I'm doing now. And I think that's why Elizabeth did it, because we just love, I just love the connection with wine. I feel, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I couldn't keep some, keep sort of, you know, connection. And I like that things have moved on, they're different, and there's all these different things you can you can learn about. Yeah. But our consultancy is really all about helping these young, new, smaller players do the things that will, will help them grow yeah. to level the playing field. And yeah. there's so much that, that they very easily can do. Yeah. I think it's, um, they, they're looking at trade and, and I think it, it's about them being confident where they stand so that they don't feel that they're being browbeaten or somebody says to them, your wine's too expensive or that's too dry or whatever. It, wine is so subjective. So because they're new, you nail these things, you know, the things that you're saying about yourself and, and how you've thought about your pricing and what you want to do. You will learn as you go along, but you will feel like you're standing, you know, you're, you're confident in what you're doing and you will learn new things and you'll find out you've made mistakes. But you don't want somebody coming up to a trade tasting saying, oh, I'm sorry, that's a very high residual sugar or whatever it is. Mm. And you know, not making you feel like you've made a mistake. They are obviously the winemakers way more technical their knowledge I, I'm no, I don't have that knowledge but you know they're passionate about what they do but you may not always like their wines but that doesn't mean that the next person comes to the stand doesn't like their wines and I think when people are really finding their feet we're saying these are the things these are the pitfalls and just feel good about what you do. Karen? How can we find you? You actually just launched the website. Was it last year, if I recall correctly? Probably at the beginning of this year. Yeah. The beginning of this year. All right. So if someone's listening and they want to find you and they're like, I'm, I want the tech sheets. I want the tech sheet profile. I want to talk to Karen. How can they find you? So it's winewithall.co.uk. And as in with, as in with all, not with. All W I T H A L. Yeah, it came from wherewithal, as in having the necessary resources to do the thing. So, wine with all, yeah. So, I'd use two capital W's because it looks smarter on the. Well, there you go. It works well for digital yeah. too, right? Capital W's fit in. Okay. So, wine with all, and you are on social media. Yeah. I'm also on as Karen Jenkins113 on, yeah. on Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I'm on yeah Instagram and Twitter. I love wine Twitter. So, and Elizabeth, how about you? What's next for you? Um, oh, there's all sorts of things happening at the moment. Um, <laughs> not quite sure. Some things I'm not sure of yet. Um, but the consumer website is Wine Cellar Door. And we've also got an app that's on Apple and Android. So it's very easy. I find if I'm planning from home a trip, then I'll use the website. But if I'm out on the road, sometimes have the app and go, which vineyards are near me? So... Um, Wine Cellar Door is on social media too. And then our service for uh, wine producers is called The Three Bottles. So, um, yeah, so we've got the threebottles.wine is the website. And again, we're on social media again, separate channels because one's B2B and one's B2C, obviously. You did all of your, oh, what were they called? X number of minutes. Was it two minutes? Was it five minute Fridays? Remember during lockdown, you did the, the segment. Bite size. Bite size. Are those still online? Because I found those super valuable. Yeah. So I did them initially um, just stream of consciousness. <laughs> um, uh, Facebook lives, mainly they started out. And then I've gradually moved some of them over. So some of them are on um, the three bottles wine. There is a page with bite right. size on it. So there aren't as many as we have for our members, but they're gradually moving over on all sorts of topics. You know, I couldn't believe that I could come up with an idea every week all the way through lockdown, but 
as we all did. We I know, man. We all pulled through on that one. Uh, well, look, I've kept you for so long. Thank you. Very Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Thanks to the team at YNGB for letting us crash your press room. And a great big thank you to Karen and Elizabeth for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.